Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. If you say what you truly believe, could you lose your career? Are you playing a role in hopes that one day you'll finally be free to be yourself? And is there more to life than seeking and striving for something we don't already have? Dr. Zubin Demania is better known as Z-Dog MD, or to his true fans, Doc Vader. After rejecting the burnout cycle of modern medicine, he broke the mold found his sense of humor, and started creating some crazy-ass videos on YouTube. That's when COVID hit, and he started challenging the way we think about the virus, our tribe, and eventually our understanding of reality itself. Z-Dog is messy, full of contradictions, and willing to own his biases in service of a greater truth. And today, we explore a whole range of topics, including overcoming burnout, using playfulness to stay true to ourselves, and waking up to our essential nature. I found out about you through this whole COVID thing, and it was really great to A, find a voice in the world that was willing to be informed instead of like, I'm going to take a position and then shove it up, you know, like shove it down people's throats. And so, but it was also really relatable. I love that you had some mastery that was, it was just like, wow, he's taking this really complex information and trying to make it so a guy like me can understand it. but then at the same time, you're wading into these waters where you're just, you're just begging to be hated and misunderstood. And I'm, I'm curious how you, how you, how did you deal with that? Cause I didn't know, I didn't know of you before that. So was life different before that? And then you're like, okay, I be, I'm just going to become this lightning rod for misunderstanding on the, both the left and the right. As I, as I just try to have a more whole complete conversation about this topic. Oh man. Uh, what was interesting because COVID introduced what I was doing to what I call the muggle audience, the non-magical, non-medical audience, right? So we have our little tribe of healthcare professionals who fancy themselves, you know, uh, something special. So they speak a special language, they trained in a certain way, but it's really a kind of a, you know, a way of distinguishing themselves or separating from, you know, the non-magical people, but we all know we're all the same people, right? So, Early on, my platform was really aimed at those folks to try to trigger 
first of all, laughter, like, oh, we suffer a lot. Let's communalize our pain. Let's get together and like laugh at the things that are hurting us. But then also let's come up with solutions. So, you know, I ran a clinic in Las Vegas, did some different things to try to say, hey, how can we innovate in a very, um, you know, holistic, disruptive way and using all the usual keywords that people use. But in reality, we were actually trying to do it on the ground. And so that was one thing. So the hate I would get in that world pre-COVID was very, you know, technical hate. Like, well, but how will you uh, fund a, a primary care capitated model that focuses on prevention? It's okay. So there's that. But then COVID happens, and now I'm like, oh, I can actually use this platform that we've built to actually educate a broader audience. It, it wasn't a conscious decision. It just started happening. And then it's almost like you go from like the science fair where you're hanging out with the nerds and they're like giving you nerd hate but it's all kind of done with love. And then you're in the state fair and you're, the people are throwing literal feces at you and you're like, Oh, this is a different kind of space. And at first it's very off putting because you take it, you might take it a little personally and your ego's all offended by, Oh, these people don't understand what I'm trying to say and this and that. And then within five minutes you realize, Oh, this is a lot of fun because what you're doing is you're actually triggering people to think about it enough that they're, that they're hurling anger at you in a tribal way, in a way that we've encouraged already on social media, this, this very fragmented, atomized, siloed kind of world we've created. Now you score points socially by leaving that incisive comment. Um, for example, that my favorite incisive and very on point comment left on one of my YouTube videos about something in COVID was why you act gay, which I thought was just right on. <laughs> Well, why do you? I mean, we've all been wanting to know. It's, you know, I, I, uh, I have to keep uh, some things close to the vest. I mean, you either act gay or you, you know, you don't act gay. It's a very binary thing in a world where there's a lot of uh, gray, you know? Well, you said, you said it was fun and I'm curious how you got there because I could imagine there's, I mean, I've listened to you and I've heard how people are walking on eggshells. They're so afraid to take a position on this virus, for instance, or the treatments or whatever because they're part of an institution. It seems like you've positioned yourself where they can come after you, but they're not, they can't really, is it, is it they can't cancel you. They can't tear you down or it only builds you up. I want to understand this because you found a way to embrace this friction and without it being something that can hurt you. Whereas most people are like, no, I've got to hang, I've got to play this role. It's not really who I am, but, and it's mm. not even really what I believe but it's too scary to really own what I believe and put that out there, much less change my mind two months later when the data is different. So I've watched you navigate this much differently than other people in your industry. Oh man. Uh, so you kind of struck at the heart of what I've been evolving towards because, you know, when I was a full-time hospital medicine doctor at Stanford for about a decade, you could not deviate from the dogma of that industry because first of all, you're conditioned in it. So you're trained in it. Like this is who you have to be. It's not even, Hey, who are you? Figure out where you fit in all this. It's no, this is who you're going to be and you don't deviate from it. So, you, so doctors in particular or healthcare people are very conditioned. They're also afraid of failure because failure means somebody gets hurt or you get sued or, you know, whatever it is. So there's a lot of conditioning that goes on that generates the inertia that we see in healthcare. So I was definitely deep in that conditioning. And when I started doing videos, they were really a kind of cry for help. It was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this is my side hustle where I'm never going to make any money doing this. It's just purely to blow off steam. And I create this character Z dog MD with two G's because, you know, one is necessary, but not sufficient to be a gangster and all this nonsense and yo, 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 and all that garbage. And even that it's a character, right? It's not 
authentically me. It's, it's an aspect, it's a fragment of me. So doing that for a long time, then we started after I built my clinic in Vegas and we started developing credibility and I started doing talks around the country about how we can build this idea of health 3.0, which is kind of this integral healthcare system, uh, more holistic minded, prevention minded, team based, uh, technology enabled, but not technology enslaved. So we kind of re bringing the human relationship to the foreground. I realized, Oh, you know what? I may actually have something to say that's authentic and unique, but still I have to find sponsors for the show. I have to be careful because I do, I monetize it by doing talks for big groups and healthcare systems and things like that. If I say the wrong thing, it's happened to me before they'll cancel the talk and you lose all this revenue. And so you're still fear-based inertia-based, uh, not being authentic because you're worried that it's going to hit the bottom line and you're going to hurt your family and, and your team that you're, you're paying their salaries and so on. And then something happened. <laughs> and I think it was really when, once my clinic closed in uh, 2017, because I think we were a little early. Our partners, by the way, who operated the clinic just um, merged with One Medical, which is a big healthcare system in a like $2.1 billion deal. And I'm like, shit, I should have stayed with that. <laughs> but, but, but it wasn't me, you know, it wasn't me. So we went full Monty on the video thing, starting our show and everything using Facebook Live and YouTube and all that in 2017. And that's when this started, this slow, sh inevitable shift to true authenticity started to happen. And I think where it really pivoted was around just prior to COVID, I had people who were paying subscription fees to be a part of a like kind of exclusive group where we do live shows where we really talk we just shoot the breeze in a very authentic and personal way, interactive with comments. And that grew to over 10,000 people. And so it's like, at that point, I'm like, I actually don't need sponsorships. The ad revenue from Facebook and all that, where they're gaming for clicks and clickbait and all that, I don't even need that. I can just do this. So guess what? I get to be me. And once COVID hit, that was fully the case. So you're never beholden to a health system. You're never beholden to an employer. You're only beholden to the audience and the audience is pretty alt middle, meaning they want just to look at all aspects of truth. So you may come hard on one thing and then and the next week go, you know what, I was actually only partially correct on that and here's what I've learned. And they're into that. And so it's like, wow, they actually want what I am authentically am to begin with. And so that was a huge release. And I think it, the timing of, of when COVID happened allowed me to do that in a way that, it, yes, it triggers a lot of hate from people who are siloed and so on and hate from my own tribe. So like if I say things like cloth masks don't have a lot of evidence to work in the public early on, oh man, I got people telling me I was a dangerous criminal for even opening my mouth about that. Um, so, but I didn't care because I'm like, you know, I think this is true. So that's kind of how it, it kind of played out, but, um, it's still a struggle because you still have to question what, what are the unconscious beliefs and biases that you have that are preventing you from actually saying what you really think is true in that moment. And then owning it when what you thought was true later turns out to be bullshit and you were wrong. And then you have to own that right in, in an authentic way. I think that's where this peace of mind comes from, which is I'll be okay. And most yeah. of us are only in this place, like I'll be okay once, once I've got enough money in the bank, once I've got the sponsorships, once I've got this place, once I've, once I've reached this level, then I'll be okay. Then I can finally, right. Then I can finally be who I really am. I can finally be whole. I can finally bring my voice to the world et cetera, et cetera. And so the, but if we start from that place, it sounds like you built this community around, I'm going to start from this place of 
venturing into the unknown or the uncertain and speak what's true for me in that day, knowing that I can come back and be like, Hey, I've got new information. All right. This is, this is where I stand now, but not once I get there, once I get this and once it's all settled and fine, and I've built my castle on the Hill, then I can finally be okay. Um, it sounds a little chicken or egg there, but I think most, most of the guys that I talk to, they're in that finish line mentality. Like I'm going to get there one day and then I can finally get out of this, this costume that I wear and then, you know, finally be who give myself permission to be all of who I am. It's a real, that's a really good insight in that a lot of people do do that. And I'll say I did that because I went through four years of medical school, three years of residency and 10 years of career in that it'll, it's just, I got to get to this point where I can be me and one day it will happen. But you know what happens trip is at some point you realize it's not going to happen. Like this is not, this is a treadmill. This is a hamster wheel. I'm constantly chasing a carrot of this ideal, this idea. It's purely a belief in an idea that things will one day I'll get to be me or will be valued for who I am or will value myself for who I am instead of having to be something else. And it never happens. And so either I think people just continue in their careers and I, I would could easily have done that and would have been miserable, but I could easily have done it where you just continue to play that game and, and hope for retirement. Oh, then, well, then when I retire, uh, you know, and, and, uh, surprise when you retire, now you're like spinning your wheels, wondering, wait, what, what, you know, you're doing your life review going, what did I do? Or something happens and you just realize, oh, now it's not a choice. Like either I can be me in some fashion or I'm going to die. Like I'm not going to survive this or I'm going to destroy my family or, you know, something's going to happen. And, and, and that's when you kind of are forcibly awakened from this dream that this, delusion really that things, uh, will only get better in the future, that, that now is not the time to do it. So I want to check out the story because uh, you, you integrate humor into everything that you do and typically health, or I should say medical stuff, isn't very funny. <laughs> and somehow you find ways to bring playfulness and humor into all that's there. And I wonder, you know, my line of work, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of humor in it as well. And early on my podcast was doing well, this is over 10 years ago. And I was getting emails and I started to realize that I think some of the people listening to this think I actually do all the things that we talk about. Like I'm living this perfect optimized life and everything. And I was like, I hate this. I don't, I'm, I'm not perfect. <laughs> and so I created this video where as if somebody hacked into the camera up here and then caught me coaching people while watching porn and eating, drinking whiskey and doing all this terrible stuff. And basically all my clients are all the terrible people that have done all, all this crazy stuff. And I was the one that advised them to do this shit. And I was like, I put out this video for April fools and it was so liberating to say, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I don't practice all this stuff. I'm in it shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm trying to figure it out and God damn it. We got to be playful. We got to find our sense of humor so I, I, when I saw you, all your humor, I was like, was there ever a point where your humor was not allowed? And you're like, ah, I'm going to die if I don't bring your playfulness. How did you bring your playfulness and your humor into this? Oh man, by the way, I love that concept of the video that you're talking about. That's just awesome, man. Like, uh, look, the universe has this huge sense of humor. It just does. It's like it's baseline. Joke. It's, <laughs> absolutely, man. It's like it. And what's funny is it's a joke told by no one for no one. And there's nobody laughing. It's this just empty, beautiful, <laughs> hilarious joke. And the thing is, I think, I think comedy is that divine connection to that in some way. And, but it can be, it can be egoified and used by, you know, our minds in ways that are malproductive. So when I was much younger, I used ego as a way to lubricate social connections. Cause you know, I'm this like funny, short, 
you know, funny looking short little kid, kind of chubby growing up in the central Valley of California, rural Clovis, California. And, um, you know, easy to get your ass kicked like on the daily, like Q one hour wedgies round the clock, like easy, easy to do. Mm. So you, I use humor as a way to kind of keep a distance, control an interaction, um, lubricate social situations. So instead of being the guy that gets his ass kicked, you're the class clown who people want to invite to the party, not because he's you know cool or anything, but because he's he'll make you laugh. So that humor was always part of my thing. It was a coping mechanism and a and um, a, a way to keep people a little bit at a distance. And as I started doing medicine, I would still use it. It would come out in these ways that were either productive or malproductive. And the productive ways are when it would break the tension on rounds. And you know, you see a lot of death and horrible things, young people getting sick um, in the hospital. And, and the way you break that tension is you use that kind of humor. You know, I used to carry this, like every now and again, I'll pull out this creepy puppet that one of our patients gave us. It was this weird hobo looking ventriloquist <laughs> doll. And I would just do rounds with this doll, like pretending to be me. And it was the creepiest, weirdest, funniest thing. And it, it breaks the tension, but you may say, oh, well, that's super inappropriate. You shouldn't be making fun of, you know, patients who are on chemotherapy and all that. It's like, no, we weren't doing that. We were using it as a way to relieve our own sense of, of, of moral injury and burnout and this kind of thing. And, and so that was always woven in, but I could never really go full Monty on it until I started making videos. And then it was like, we said, okay, the other, the other role of humor is to point out how crazy something is by pointing out to the truth of it. And the truth is hilarious because it's a paradox. You're like, Hey, we say we're these great healers and we care about people. And yet look what we do here. <laughs> like, look what we do to each other. Look how we treat our interns and our young medical students. And, and, um, and then you laugh at it because if you didn't laugh, you would cry sort of thing. Yeah. So it's always been kind of woven into that, uh, fabric of the thing. And sometimes though, I I'm a little regretful nowadays because I use less humor because I feel a little bit of the, the weight of getting older and the weight of responsibility to kind of communicate. And so sometimes I feel like being a little too silly might sabotage a message and, and, that sort of thing. So I, I'm still trying to find that balance. It's tough, right? It's tough to do that. And at the same time, I, I do think that humor can be used in a beautiful way to really drive a point home. Uh, and without, it's such an artful thing to do that without bringing somebody else down at the same time. It's usually where it happens is, is, oh, we learn how to be funny by making fun of somebody else. But can we, can we find that playfulness in the paradox? Can we laugh at ourselves? Oh, and then I get to actually reclaim part of myself because I was scared of that thing and now I can own it again. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, I just, I've just appreciated that you've been able to do this. Like, wow. Cause it's, it's, it's inspired me. It's like, Oh, th he can be playful with that. That's a hell of a lot more serious than what I'm talking about on a daily basis. But I find that that playfulness is actually where we can allow ourselves to take more risks if I can remember to be playful and then playful is not making fun of anything and it's not being trivial or flippant, but it, it does remind us like, I'll be okay. We can, we're, we, we'll get through this. And the playfulness is like, okay, I think we can get through this. All right. So, so what's the next step when it's, when would that everything's so tense and everything goes so serious, I think we're a liability to ourselves. And I find that that playfulness can get in there. If it's done artfully, it kind of relaxes us a bit and bring that, that better part of us to the, to the fore. Uh, yeah, I love it. I mean, that's absolutely true. You know, it's funny. Uh, recently I had, um, a guest on my show, Dr. Angelo DeLulo, who's an anesthesiologist in Colorado. And he underwent a like profound, like mystical awakening, um, you know, spiritual awakening in, in 1997 and kind of buried it down and, and, but continued to explore, but never talked about it. And just in recent years has been teaching and, 
um, talking about it kind of in these small circles and he wrote a book. So I said, oh, you know, he sent it to me. I read it. I was like, this is great. It's the most direct pointer I've seen for this very heavy and esoteric topic that is often misconstrued and religified and all the other stuff. And I said, this is very helpful. So, you know, come on my show. He came up for a couple of days. We did a bunch of episodes. Well, by about, I don't know, episode five of the thing, we're pretty punch drunk. We did a live episode for my supporters and the entire, we started taking questions about, oh, I had this awakening experience of what happens with the ego, this, that kind of heavy stuff. At some point we started talking about the area between the testicles and the anus, which, you know, has multiple names, the taint, the, uh, the grundle, the gooch. Yes. <laughs> many, many names. And for about an hour, we riffed on the taint and it was, it was ridiculous, like just pure improv, super release of tension. The audience was weirdly enough, was really into it. I haven't released it publicly, but that catharsis of laughter, we had tears coming down our face and it was a joy. And it was also a, a super authentic, it was dumb as hell and, and really, 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 um, a release of energy and emotion that builds up. And so we, like you said, I think, I think that playfulness, that kind of joy in creation of recognizing these weird paradoxical things. Like you can be two physicians talking about this ridiculously childish, like it was like Beavis and Butthead, like medical edition and people who get it are really going to get it. And there's always going to be people who are like, they're deeply offended by it. But in reality, it's some, some projection of something that's going on with them and you can't take it personally and some feedback you do need to take and go, you know, sometimes we overdo it, whatever it is, but you have to, you have to be open to it as well. I think play, you know, as, as I've learned, I've, I've integrated this into a lot of the work that I do and I wrote about it in my book, but it, to me, it's an indicator. It's, it's a, it's a sign of health in a system, right? So if you, you watch mammals when they're playing, we're, we're doing good. It's not, we're not, we don't play when we're starving or we're freaked out. We play because we've, okay, we've got our needs met and now we play. And that's where we actually grow. We, we find new things to do. So you watch otters, you watch other animals, it's like plays where it's at. It's like, this is how we know we're doing well. And I think it's one of those indicators as social creatures. Hey, we're okay. We're going to get through this. We're, we can be playful here. We're not dismissing anything, uh, but we can find that part of us that is much bigger than maybe our, our small self wants us to believe in this moment. I, I, to me, play is what helps me connect to that more divine, that more absolute part of us. Oh, I, I couldn't have said that better myself. I mean, and I, I certainly couldn't have because that's your, <laughs> you're teaching me this. It's beautiful. This idea of connection to this now, it's not a moment, right? It's outside of time. It's this eternal now, almost, you almost open a, like a hole to it when you play or when you improvise or when you channel that joy and you see it in animals. Like we used to have a rabbit that lived in our uh, backyard in, the, in, in a op wide open enclosure. And when that thing would express joy by running and jumping in the air and tweaking itself like a freaking Tony Hawk little skateboard <laughs> move and it would land and it would just, it would just, just dance this thing. And you felt it like as another mammal, you were simpatico with it. You're like, oh, the joy in this animal living right now, me needs are met, it's fed, it's happy, it just, expresses itself like this and that you can't underestimate that. And then you can actually get really nerdy on play, right? Which I'm sure you've done where you look into it and go, Hey, this is how mammals and humans learn to take risk. It's where we learn what are our boundaries and extend them. It's where we become social with others. It's where we stop living in future and past and just focus it right now. And how do we express in the moment what's going on in a very authentic way? Play is beautiful. And, and, and we don't have 
any of it in medicine, in our training or in how we're conditioned. It's just, it either is an epiphenomenon of just the people that tend to be open to it, or we force it in certain, almost, it's like a purge culture trip. Like medical school is like a purge culture. And what I mean by that is we, we repress, we repress, we repress. And then once in a while we're given official sanction to let it all hang out. And at UCSF where I went to medical school in San Francisco, it was the second year class play. So the second year students who've been through all this horrible amounts of learning, like it's, it's brutal. It's like a, it's a beatdown. They're at the end of the year, they're supposed to put on this big play in this big auditorium that makes fun and is, is satirizing what their experience has been. And man, it is just straight debauchery. Like the kind of satire that's done is it's, it's edgy. It pushes everything. The professors are uncomfortable, but it is a, it's a release. And yet they, they have to hold it in all that time before they can do it. So it, that's what I mean by a purge culture. It's like, if you watch Rick and Morty, there's these episodes, Oh, this is a purge planet, Morty. This is where, you know, they hold it all in. They repress themselves. They're super, you know, <laughs> Trump tight. And then every one day a year, they just murder each other in a bloody bloodbath. And, you know, and that's socially sanctioned. Is there another way for the medical community? I mean, from this point of view, I mean, do you see, or, or they have to go to a model that you've got, which is it's okay. I've got, I've got space. It's part of the plan that I get to express myself instead of, okay, what's my purge day this year? I got to put it on the calendar. <laughs> I mean, you kind of nailed that our medical education system is built from a, an ancient apprenticeship guild model. And so it's not, it's not designed for that. Uh, it's designed like this. The first two years you memorize a bunch of facts that are spouted at you from a sage on the stage who it's not interactive. It's just like, here's all the information. And it turns out about half of that information is going to end up being proven completely wrong. And of course they don't know which half, so they don't have the courtesy to tell you. And so you just have to memorize it all on faith. So it's not even an inquisitive process. It's not an, it's just, here's the stuff. Then the second two years are like at a guild apprenticeship model. So the goal is you kiss the ring of the authority figure, the attending physician, so that one day you'll be the ring that's kissed. So it's not about questioning authority. It's not about um, really disruptive innovation. It's about, okay, let's just play the game. So you know, one day we'll be able to break the rules, but that never happens uh, because there's always more rules because then it's the administrators and then it's the insurance companies. And then, so what we need to do in medical education is from the pre-med era, when we're screening people based on these ridiculous tests that have no real correlation to being a good doctor, we need to teach that, hey, being a really good human, having a, having a, a, a high emotional intelligence so that you can use humor in a way that isn't hurtful, like, like you said, like punching down, bringing somebody else down with humor. And I've been, I've been guilty of this too, because it's easy. It's such low hanging fruit. It's easy to get a laugh, but it's not a sustaining or healthy form of, of, of humor, really, really screening for those folks and then encouraging it in medical school and in our own modeling as teachers and mentors would be key, but it's going to be a generational sort of shift. It's going to take some time. Yeah. All right. Let's see if we can pull an existential hamstring here. So recently you've been talking about, you've been on this awakening conversation, which it's something that's not foreign to me. It's something familiar with me, but I also was like, wow, I haven't really brought that to my audience. And here you are, this is kind of this more medically oriented audience. And they're like, Hey, we're going in both feet. in." I was like, Oh wow, this guy, man, he's bringing it. So What's, what, what has, I know that you talked a little bit about Dr. Angelo DeLulo and his book and how that's inspired you, but I'd love to hear this build up to 
yeah, how, how you've been seeing and experiencing life differently and saying, Hey, I want to, now I also want to bring this to my audience. Man, Trip, like you and I could do a support group of two, like who, you know, cause you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're interested in this kind of thing, um, it's all you really care about deep down and you just want to tell everyone and you and I both have these platforms and it's kind of like, you know, we're using the same microphone. It's like, we're in the same space and different angles of it. And you just want to tell them like, yo, listen guys, this is, this is what's going on. But you know that about 90% of the audience is going to be like, uh, I'm sorry, you lost me on that and I am out. And so you have to kind of, it's a very tricky thing. So for me, what happened was when I was, when I was at Stanford, I was, you know, again, by, by year eight of that, <clears throat> I was pretty miserable and I was constantly seeking like, okay, the next thing is I, I'll get an Acura TL, man, it's, it'll have leather and that'll make me happy. And oh, I'll buy a house <laughs> on the hill and it, it, that's going to make me happy. And ah, you know what? I have all those things. I'll have a kid that'll make me happy. And it, oh, it brings joy, no doubt about it, but it's not, there's something always seeking. There's that, that constant striving and especially the type A's and stuff. It's like, it's compounded by the deep feelings of like unworthiness inadequacy, all those things. It's like, you know, egoic striving egos always worried that people are going to figure out you're an imposter and you're worth nothing. So I, I really kind of was hitting the bottom on that started making the videos on YouTube just really as a cry for help. And it got the attention of, um, my friend, uh, Tony Shea, who my wife went, he's the, was the CEO of, I have so much trouble talking about him in the past tense because he recently passed away. And the, you know, the stuff you read about that, because, you know, we were, we were good friends for decades and we were in the group of his friends that were trying to help. And it was so hard to see what happened with him, but that's a whole nother conversation. And so Tony was a, amazing, beautiful, awake person. And he reached out and said, I see the videos you're making. You clearly are looking for something that isn't what you have. Like quit your job at Stanford, move your wife, who's also a doctor at Stanford and your two kids to two daughters to Las Vegas. And I'm investing in downtown Las Vegas. We're doing this kind of building community and it's gotta be authentically you and so on. And these, these were foreign words to me, like, <laughs> wait, you are valuing authenticity and community and it's, and it's not just words. I can tell that you mean it because I'm, I know you and I know you have the resources to do it because you're like a billionaire. So is this a thing, right? So after, I mean, once you get that indecent proposal, you're just like, you can't sleep, right? So at that point we did this crazy thing and we said, okay, let's leave the Bay area and let's go to Las Vegas and take this huge plunge. And my wife was supportive because she saw that I was suffering. She was like, you're so unhappy. Like you're not going to last another. You're like, Oh, well, if I just go another 15 years, I'll retire. And I just got to suck it up. No, you're not. You're going to, you're going to be dead. It's not going to last. You can't do it. So we did, we went to Vegas and for the first time since probably I was in high school, like I was off the treadmill of achievement. He was just like, take a few months and figure out what you want to do. If you want to make videos, if you want to do a clinic, whatever you want to do. And I just dove into this idea of, of what, what, and what am I, who am I? What is this? Right. What, what's going on? And that's when I got introduced to, you know, Eckhart Tolle's the power of now. Someone was just like, Hey, you should listen to this thing. And I was like, Oh, this is mumbo jumbo, new age garbage. After listening to the audiobook, I was like, Oh, I discovered something I never knew existed. It's called the present <laughs> moment. 
And I didn't understand half of what he was saying and the other half sounded crazy, but there was something deep inside that I was like, this resonates in a way that nothing has ever resonated. It feels more true than anything I learned in medical school, like what's going on here? And, and that opened the door to the sort of, then the transition from the egoic seeker to the egoic spiritual seeker, where I was like, I must figure out the meaning of life and then the striving <laughs> within ego to try to figure that out for the next eight years, meditating, different things, reading Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, because, you know, I was an atheist and all this. And, uh, and that's kind of how it, it started. And then it evolved from there. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's one of those conversations that when I, when I talk to so many of my clients can follow that profile, I, I followed the profile you talked about, right? Like, this is the thing that's going to make me happy, even though I'm not really happy. And I, I can kind of start to see how this is going to play out. There's not really going to be a thing that I can buy or a, something that I can acquire that's going to do it. And then it starts to be on this other path of, of more of an inward, you know, questioning, right. An inquiry of who am I really and that kind of thing. And then most of the guys that I talk to is like, I, I always feel like if I start to bring that up, it's, it's like, the hell is this talking about? But then they'll circle back around later on in the night. Like if it's at an event or something, it's like, Hey, that thing you were talking about, man, what, what like, what do you have a book you'd recommend? Do you have a thing you'd recommend? It's like, cause there's a knowing there's a part, there's going to be a certain part of the audience. It's like, Oh, you just rang the bell and there's something there for me. And it's not me that's delivering. It's just more of, there's another, there's a whole other world here other than what we've been fed from day one, which is achieve, achieve, achieve. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think we can still go do great things in the world, but yes, this, this whole part of like answering the question, who am I really is a, is a whole other ball of wax. You, you, you've, <laughs> man, it's really funny. I mean, I, cause I think to some extent that achievement mentality is necessary. You need it in your life at some point. Yeah. And, and again, maybe I'm just rationalizing, right? Maybe I'm just like, well, because I had to do it. So everyone else has to do it too. But I think there is a degree of trying to accomplish in the egoic system, meaning this, this kind of illusion that we're a separate self trying to acquire happiness by getting stuff, getting love, getting sex, getting whatever, success, getting um, uh, respect from peers and from others, fame, whatever it is. And by at least attempting that acquisition, you realize that it is a never ending hamster wheel of delusion. And you may get transient hits of dopamine where you're quite happy for a minute or two, but it doesn't last. And I think without going through that, a lot of people never reach the realization that I need to wake up to what's actually going on. So when you talk to people like that trip, because it happens to me, I can turn it on strong and then realize, oh, First of all, I might actually be triggering this person's defenses. Like they immediately will be like, okay, I thought you were cool. I thought you were all about the science. And now you're talking about there's no self. Like, what does that even mean? Like <laughs> I spent my whole life <laughs> trying to work on this no self. Like I have chiseled abs because I don't eat a carb. Like that's the, that's the self you're saying doesn't exist. And, and I'm like, okay, never mind. Anyways, hey, check out that chick over there. You know, whatever, you change the subject. And then you're right, later in the evening, they're like, wait, so, you know, it's funny. I had this experience when I was a kid where suddenly I was the room, like, and I can't describe it. I've never told anyone about it. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, maybe check out this book or maybe this or this. And you sense that energetic opening. Um, and it's, it's just the most beautiful and fascinating thing. It's, it's almost like, you know, we're dreamers whose sole ultimate goal is to wake up, but how we get there or whether we get there in this go around is really, 
it's not determined. <laughs> oh, and so the, yeah, 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 yeah. The ride is such a roller coaster. Well, I, you know, I had Jamie wheel on the show recently and he, he said something beautiful, like offhand. I don't know where he got it, but he said, you know, we're in that intersection of staying alive and coming alive. And so uh. I think that there's this belief that if I just get really good at staying alive, which is acquiring things, you know, I, I need this in order to live and well, I must need more in order to live. Like we haven't really reached that. That's the only game in town, right? It's, everything's a nail. I'm a, I'm a hammer, right? Bang, bang, bang. I'm just going to get really good at surviving and I'm going to have more comfort, more certainty, more status. And then realizing, Oh, wait a second. There's another aspect here. There's another axis on this, uh, on this chart here, which is vertical. And it's like, that's the coming alive part. And oh, now I get to do this too. I can go create in the world. I can go bring the cool things that I have into this world, but I can also access this other part and, and, and tap into that. And that, that's where we find, at least for me, is like, I can be more playful now. It's like, I don't have to depend so much on the coming alive stuff to check the boxes. Yeah. Coming alive, the, the, the staying yeah, no, alive stuff, excuse me, is more about just like, okay, cool. The boxes check. We're all good. We got the bills paid. We got, okay, we're all good. Good. Now we come back to coming alive, right? What, what, what am I here to really experience? What's trying to live through me and as me? Okay, great. How can I honor that? How can I practice and, and bring discipline to that? Ah, uh, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, you know, the Buddhists say in a very wonky way, uh, emptiness is form and form is emptiness, meaning that aspect of true reality, what we are, this open, you know, we won't, we won't try to put words on it because I think it, 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 first of all, it sends people down a path of conceptualizing what we are. And I think that's not a great way to, 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 um, uh, what's the word, transmit that idea. I, I, I think there's an aspect that we know is kind of, we feel that sense of I amness, like I am being, just beingness. And then there's the structures and functions of the world, you know, the, the, the way we're talking, the mouse, the my cup that I'm holding and different things like that. And those are two sides of the same coin. And so you can actually do wonderful things in this manifestation of the world while still connecting and drawing, um, um, truth and wisdom from that other unmanifest side. And they're the same thing. And I think the great philosophers of all time have really pointed to this perennial philosophy. Uh, and again, but, but to access the deeper parts, some people choose structured religion. Some people choose, you know, um, more like, uh, uh inquiry and, my own path has been one of inquiry where it's like, oh, let, let me examine this thing called the present in this right now. And you know, it's funny trip like recently because I've been hanging out more with these guys that really are good transmitters of that kind of wisdom. Like they speak from presence and therefore they bring you that deepest part of you out and you're there with them. I find sometimes now I'll do a live show from my phone in my backyard and someone will say a comment like, oh, you know, I was just thinking about the present moment, whatever the blah, blah, blah. And I'll go, you know, let's stop thinking. Let's get present right now. And everything will get silent. And I'll just make eye contact with the camera and I'll bring myself into presence. And the words that come out aren't, they're not authored by me. They never really are. And it's this timeless moment. And I go, oh, well, that was a trip of hopefully people don't think I'm crazy. And then I'll get 30 emails. What did you just do? Like what just happened there? <laughs> I, I've never felt like that. I started crying like something. And I'm like, that's the presence. That's, that's this isness yeah. that we're pointing at. So 
you know, it's a, it can be very destabilizing for people who don't who don't have a container or a context for it, which is why I think, you know, a lot of spiritual traditions are very careful about introducing these ideas. But I think in order to prevent ourselves from killing ourselves, we really need to start to explore these, these kind of aspects of our being. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I want to just give the listener today is just something that's like, Hey, there's, there's probably something else. If it feels like you're beating your head against the wall in this game of staying alive, this coming alive is a much deeper conversation. I know for me, it seemed really binary. It was either, I believe in a guy and in, in a white with, in a robe with a white beard and he judged everybody <laughs> or you didn't believe in anything. And, and there's a, there's a whole spectrum of things to, to get into. And it, uh, it might just be right here in this very moment instead of something to chase down and, and acquire. Mm. Mm. And one thing I would say for the audience too, is there's spectrums of realization of that truth that you may find you only need to go this far to find considerable peace. It may be just a little bit of meditation or mindfulness in the moment or prayer or whatever it is, chanting, you find your path. Or you may be one of those people that goes very deep down the rabbit hole. And one thing I, I have seen, seem, seems to continually present itself to me is how deep it can go and how amazingly profound the present moment when you unfilter it, when you take the concepts away and the perceptual filters that we put on right now, you know, the projecting into the future and the remembering the past and the guilt in the present about the sin we committed in the past and the fear of what's going to happen to us in the future. It's this kind of spectrum when we really focus, drill down into the moment with inquiry, who am I? What is this? What's going on? What's revealed is so profound, so liberating, and so um, empowering of all the things we thought we wanted. So suddenly you're more authentic in the world and you're more able to pay the bills. It's just a weird virtuous cycle that seems to happen. Beautiful, man. I'm so glad we got a chance to connect. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time, man. But uh, this has been fantastic. I feel like I could just riff with you for <laughs> a lot longer. So thank you so much, man. Oh, thank you. It's a real honor, man. And uh, we'll have to do it again if you're ever game. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.